Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson. And Fred and I were just talking about one of our favorite topics, which is <laughs> MTBF. No, it can't be MTBF. <laughs> imagine, imagine a regulatory body talking about MTBF. That would be yeah, your worst well, nightmare. Yeah, that would be really bad. Uh, you know, speaking of that, one of the I found a, a letter, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and I ran across it again yesterday, is that the U.S. Army actually issued a directive to not use uh, reliability predictions, not to use 217 anymore. When was that? It was like 30 years ago. It was oh. a long time ago. It was shortly after 17 was basically retired and pulled out. Um, but yeah, I'll have to I'll have to send you a copy of that. It's obviously been ignored all the way through the right. whole industry. I mean, there are co- people run courses on how to use <laughs> 217 prediction. Yeah. Well, you know, and 217 is not a regulation, which is we were just chatting about. It was like, oh, good grief. The the there are good practices and there's bad practices in reliability. And I think doing parts count prediction based on 40-year-old tables of, of component failure rates is a pretty clear not good practice. Unfortunately, it still gets used. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's the regulatory body's problem. No. You know, and, and I used one example with you is that, you know, in the, in the aircraft industry, and I've also run into it with uh, safety equipment for like a, like a chemical plant or whatever. One of my clients had, had this issue is that if they change their manufacturing or if they change, the, you know, the idea of continuous improvement, was avoided, deliberately avoided, once their system was, once an aircraft was deemed airworthy by the FAA, you don't change it in ever. You don't change how you weld it together, things like that. Just simple, what we would think of would be continuous improvement activities. You just don't do it because at some point it'll trigger a full review and re the need to recertify airworthiness. And you can understand that sometimes an improvement doesn't actually make an improvement. Yet the way the FAA deals deals with it, and the same with the uh, TUV out of uh, Europe, and they were doing these these uh, safety regulations for like chemical plants and stuff like that. If you make any change, and I understand the logic to a certain degree, if you make any change. It's not just that change that we're evaluating. And it's a good practice for reliability engineers is, well, what other things does that change impact? Let's look at a little bit larger part of the system because most everything in our products interact with other things. So you got to step back and say, what else does this change? If I change a capacitor, does it change the response time? Or is it just, does it have any effect on the rest of the circuit? I understand that. But these regular two regulatory bodies in particular say, well, if you change anything, we're gonna mm-hmm. you lose your like in the FAA, your aircraft is no longer airworthy. You can't make them anymore. You can't fly them anymore. And now we got to go full full review and make sure that the changes you're proposing is the whole airframe is still airworthy. And yeah, you know, 
I was hearing that from a guy from Cessna and he said, you know, we basically are financially deterred from improving the original over the wing Cessna, which has been flying for decades and decades really well, but we can't improve that airframe. Otherwise we have to pay an exorbitant amount to run through that qual system again. Right. What, what's recently happened with the Titan submersible? We're not going to talk too much about, you know, what actually went wrong, but we we do know that is a relatively, uh, those deep sea submersibles, commercial ones at least, are relatively unregulated. But in this instance, we had a brand new technology using carbon fiber for brand new application, deep sea, uh, uh, deep sea diving. And of course, things went wrong. And the history is a little bit enlightening in that industry leaders wrote letters saying this, this thing's not cool. Um, yeah. And that that's quite powerful. And but that said, uh, now we have a scenario where people who say, "Well, we need to have strong regulations," can look at examples like that. Say, "Look, this is what, look what happens when people decide to do their own thing. We can't trust people. We can't uh, buyer beware is fair enough until someone dies, in which case we've got to change the world." Um, and I'd say the same with FAA to an extent. A lot of air, air travel is very, very safe. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about it. And there's a price we pay for that is that there's not, Boeing said they're not going to create a new airframe for another decade, maybe. <laughs> it's just the right. the cost. The I mean, there's a cost of designing a new airframe and materials and everything else that goes into it. Yet the burden of creating a new getting through the regulatory hurdles same with nuclear industry same with you know medical devices same with drug research just getting through the regulatory pieces and then imagine you want to get it certified or or through the regulatory hurdles in 20 other countries which often conflict uh, of what their guidelines and rules are it, uh, power supplies i did this when i was at hp is that the the get a power supply certified in canada in the US wasn't too bad. They're very similar. Europe was completely different. China was off the wall in 180 degrees type thing. So that the exact same design was very nearly impossible to get uh, a electrical certification to be used in their in their in their country. And so it really, really constrained what a design could do. And it really stifled the innovation. The unfortunate part is that some of that innovation. Yeah, cost people's lives, and yet where's the balance? How? I, and I agree with you, Chris. Is that air air traffic is amazingly safe, yet we're burning just gobs of air near jet fuel, <laughs> and innovations that would make the planes more efficient and and less fuel. I mean, just the simple thing here in the Bay Area. Um, there was a, a pilot program or a, a, an experimental program to allow aircraft to do a steady glide on their landing approach. You would think that's kind of obvious, but no, the, the FAA regulations and air traffic control would have them at 10,000 feet, and then they would step down to 8,000 feet, and then they'd step down and they'd fly flat for a bit. And then it was like a staircase going down, which burns a way more fuel to stop the descent each. Couple thousand feet, and it's like 
So they said, oh yeah, it saves lots of fuel. It's really great. We're not going to do it anywhere else because it's, you know, we'd have to change the regulations. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, there, and then we look at, again, Boeing, you said they're going to release a new airframe for a long time because of the regulation. But they took it too far the other way where they essentially self-certified. The FAA said, oh yeah, okay, well, you can go self-certify everything. And of course, then we had stuff that was introduced into service way too fast. And then we had the mm-hmm. 737 MAX um, issues. Yep. yep. Issues. Let's talk about the issues. They call them catastrophes. Yeah. Um, unambiguously bad. And so you say, then you have, we have now another piece of evidence for people saying, no, regulations need to be tighter, 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 tighter. I mean, there's a balance to be found, to be sure. But I think it's, um, it, it's always pro- problematic. Yeah, the some of the many of the examples we're using are related to safety. Um, what I found when I a number of my clients have been working and were on medical devices, and the FDA in the U.S. Federal Drug Administration, I think, or I don't know what it stands for. Um, yeah. They have they really pay attention to how something's assembled, what kind of tolerances are there? How do you maintain, if it's supposed to deliver one milliliter of some fluid, then how do you make sure it's one milliliter and not something else? And what all these different environmental conditions and use conditions. And, but they got deep into the manufacturing process and the design constraints and all the other pieces of it. And I said, well, why am I here? I'm a reliability engineer. And they said, well, the FDA doesn't care about that. It just has to work. But we're worried about, does it degrade in a way that would violate one of these parameters? Oh, okay. Well, that's a reliability problem. You know, if a, if a, uh, a seal erodes over time, then it leaks too much and then it doesn't deliver what it's supposed to deliver. Okay, I get it. That's reliability. But how long is your product supposed to last? Oh, we don't care. It just has to get past the FDA. You know, like it's like uh, I don't know how to answer that question. He says, "Well, the FDA doesn't. It's a they say it's a a business decision if your product is good for one year or five years or ten years in the use where it's intended to be used. Thinking of like a diagnostic piece of equipment or a blood mm-hmm. sampling equipment or something like that. That's a business decision. That has nothing to do with the efficacy and safety of your equipment. Okay." Except when they intersect, you know, if something wears out or something corrodes or something decays or drifts or whatever, and it crosses one of these thresholds that affect its ability to do what it's supposed to do, then we cross the line of going, oh, they do care about reliability. And a handful of these companies I work with were like, well, they're only worried about does it work out of the box. So we're not going to bring up that that O-ring doesn't work after three years. <laughs> so we don't have to, we're not going to do anything with that. We're not even going to look that way. And I'm like, well, it, is the regulation helping you here or is it hurting you? Mm-hmm. I think it's an age-old push and pull. Yeah, But culturally too, I mean, let's let's be honest. You have a different sort of human being who's going to be the, with the entrepreneurial, engineering, pioneering spirit who builds stuff versus the individual who wants to 
be in the business of regulation. It's, it's, it's a government job. It's got benefits. It's you know it's unlikely mm-hmm. you're not unlikely to get sacked. It's got you do it for different reasons, and you have these you have these different mindsets as a result. And it's not not always good. Ideally, people think that you know the regulators are experts in the field and being there, done that sort of people. And in many cases, that could not be further from the truth. Um, you don't get too many people who build something fabulous and pioneer new technologies and, and cross thresholds that have never been crossed before and do it successfully and then retire from that career path and say, I'm going to be a regulator now. That just doesn't happen. Yeah, I don't expect the many of the senior engineers in SpaceX are going to go to the you know space command to regulate it or something. Yeah, no. I don't see that happening. It's Not a different world. Yeah, yeah, and that matters. That's that cultural difference matters, and then you have it, and and then you have uh, the the differences in, in skill sets. Where again, look, look what happened at Boeing again. We just talked about that for the seven three seven Max. I suspect the regulators just didn't have the engineering wherewithal to be able to essentially combat what was a very, no doubt, vocal Boeing argument about them being able to certify. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy that Cessna can't, you know, ch- change from uh, that Cessna airframe can't change from hand welding to automated machine welding because that's going to be oh we had to recertify the whole plane but Boeing was allowed to essentially self-certify an airframe they argued was the same because it was sufficiently similar and all of a sudden bad things happened it's yeah it's, yeah it's, there's a balance I, yeah it's head scratching and there's a balance and part of it is that you know for every barrier there's a workaround yeah, there's kind of that yeah, attitude true. too. Uh, well, we'll just do this where there's no regulations. I mean, companies do it; they move to where the tax burden is lower. It's, right. I mean, Ireland became a, a real powerhouse and it, for doing business in Europe because their tax laws were beneficial to companies to set up shop there. Uh, Brazil mm-hmm. does that. So regulations, <laughs> I think, in their purest intent, is to provide guardrails. You know, so in the U.S. and the auto industry, up until I, I don't know, somewhere in the '60s, I think it was, we didn't have seatbelts, and mm-hmm. I think one or two companies came out with them, and and people had, you know, said, "Hey, look, if you have a seatbelt, if you get in a crash, you're much more likely to survive." Oh, well, that's a good thing. All right, and the government said, "Oh, uh, well, everybody has to do it. Make it an even playing field." And the hue and the cry and the pushback and it's impossible and it'll cost too much and nobody will use them and it'll wrinkle your shirt and it's like, and and then it just saved lives and then it's automatic braking systems or uh, ABS systems and they're uh, and then uh, roll cages and uh, airbags and all these other things that come into it then get regulated and. In, Part of it is to save lives. Part of it is to reduce medical expenses across the country. Part of it is to not leave it up to the individual automakers to do that or not do it because history shows that they won't add features unless there's an overwhelming demand or a a law that says you have to. But like air safety, 
in, in airline travel, air travel is incredibly safe. You more at risk, even in today's cars, getting to the airport than you are having an accident in the air. The and, and some of the argument is what's the balance? How intrusive, you know, all right, government, you design the car and then we'll all just make the same ones for everybody. Well, yeah. We've had a couple of countries do that experiment. And you've written about and talked a lot about um the autonomous vehicles and mm-hmm. the regulatory is just not not there yet. And w- what is their role eventually? And and is like, well, there's a whole lot of automation going on or um experiments going on. People are inadvertent, you know, they don't truly have a fully autonomous driving vehicle and they, you know, lay back and take a nap. <laughs> like, yeah, I but there's not a regulatory framework set up for that yet that these companies get in trouble. They are in the public domain getting, you know, in the news and so on, but you don't hear about it near as much as you did two, three years ago. It's, and I think um, San Francisco um, has been a test ground for autonomous taxis uh, mm-hmm. from, I think two different companies are set up shop there and run all over the place. And now the fire department's complaining about them because when it gets confusing and there's some disturbance or there's a fire up there or whatever, these cars just stop and they're in the way and they don't know how to pull out of the way. And so then, then like, you can't walk up and say, Hey buddy, can you move your car? There's nobody in there. (laughs) (laughs) And they use the example of these four autonomous vehicles came up to a four way stop and they all waited for somebody to move. So nobody moved. And they were blocking this intersection. And then the only reason it became a problem is that the fire trucks were trying to get through there. And they were like, uh, they didn't move. It got too confusing for them. So they just, their programming is just stop. And they were in the way. <laughs> so San Francisco's pushing back at them a little bit. Well, that's sort of how it's got to be to an extent initially. I mean, if you go back to the whole regulation vehicles versus autonomous vehicles, and you talked about seatbelts and everything else, virtually. Every single federal motor vehicle safety standard incorporates or demands as a standard features that were initially made standard in at least one production car before they turn into an MV, a federal motor vehicle safety standard. So essentially, that means that everything from seatbelts to ABS. There was a car maker out there who, before they were told to do it, said, "Let's try make let's try and put this into our, our vehicles," and then. Uh, and then essentially everyone looked around, so that's a good idea. We should have seatbelts the way you described, and then it became standard. So every yeah. single standard that exists today, at least in the US, is based on an idea and a rollout of that idea from automotive automotive manufacturer. Mm-hmm. That 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 is unambiguous. That's just how it is. Yeah. And what that means is that the regulators were always operating in a lag. They weren't pioneering away. They weren't doing lab tests and said, hey, we have invented this thing called a seatbelt. It's going to be amazing. They didn't invent ABS. They haven't invented anything. They just observe what the industry does. Um, When the industry, through market forces, has morphed towards a safer vehicle, cool, and they've just sort of mandated the bits, the good bits that came through as, as they came through. And to the public, I don't think that role, that natural lag in regulation is very clear. It's 
it's always in response to a manufacturer doing something. Mm-hmm. And so autonomous vehicles are here and there's the expectation. Now, the regulators are going to lead the way and saying, well, this is what a safe autonomous vehicle looks like. And they don't have a clue. I didn't have a clue with seatbelts or ABS or anything. How are they going to have? How are they going to have a clue? It's going to be three or four years of somebody just doing it and see if it works or not. You know, right? And to be honest, those scenarios where you have, um, where you have um, those autonomous vehicles at that four-way stop, you know what? Say la vie. I'm not saying I'm not trying to downplay it. I'm not trying to say that that might have caused a, a genuine problem, which we should never downplay. But if you don't, if you don't want to risk anything, you don't. You'll never achieve anything. So you are going to have these teething problems with brand new technologies. Um, it's just what are you going? What's what's the role of the regulatory body behind all this stuff? And I, I don't know the ins and outs of the scenario you talked about, but that those sorts of issues sound completely expected in a way for a new technology such as autonomous vehicles rolling out. And the sooner we do it, the sooner we can push through these, these issues because they're going to happen. Yeah, no, I agree. It's the, I think fortunately from a reliability, will this product function for 10 years or not is not highly regulated. I think there are where it overlaps on safety than it is. And, and 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 the role provides, like I said earlier, it provides uh, guardrails saying, we know that if you mix this, this, and this together in that environment, it explodes. Let's not do that. Especially when you don't want it to explode, you know, kind of thing. And so some of it is from lessons learned, some of it's, you know, physics and science, but most of it is because of some disaster that's happened. And then mm-hmm. like, like you're talking about with the Titan, um, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a, I saw a story about uh, an oil platform, uh, offshore oil platform that had a huge fire and it in, then engendered all these regulations about ex- escape abilities and, and uh, uh, how do you save a crew when a rig catches on fire? Because it's usually pretty bad because you're pumping a bunch of fuel into it. Um, so it's. Yeah, it's not it, cool. It's not cool. And then it, and then the companies are saying, well, that's too expensive or this is that. And the other thing yet, you know, you pay billions of dollars when you have a failure and, and all kinds of lost production and you lose your experienced crew. And uh, so it's incrementally making progress. There's no doubt about it. Some of the regulations though, and it'd be my last comment on it. We should probably wrap it up is that some regulations take on a life of their own, even after that technology has been long gone and retired. Um, you know, so there's usually not in the regulation is the clause of the trigger of when it should go away, when it's no longer applied. And I find that extremely frustrating. Right. So that that's, but anyway, the regulations in in different industries, you know, have a different impact, different, uh, uh, sets of guidelines and rules, different countries have different regulations. I found that kind of just bizarre, but they, they do. Um, and I'm, I don't know, I, I imagine there's somebody out there in our listening audience that, that, you know, here's another take on how to think about regulations. You know, you and I, Chris, come in at, we're not regulators. Uh, we work with teams that have to run through that gauntlet one way or the other for their products to get to market. Yet it's not our expertise by any means. And mm-hmm. luckily, as 
you know, how to calculate a, a reliability estimate for something really should be regulated because there's some really bad practices out there, but it uh, doesn't usually lead to disasters that we know of. But if you're listening to this and have some input or ideas or thought on this discussion, let us know or any on any of the other ones or even, you know, what you think should be regulated. Let's go that far. Let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. You can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us there. There's also uh, Chris and I and the other hosts of the show are available through LinkedIn and um, uh, and our about pages on Ascendo. Um, and I'm looking at our list of topics. And, you know, I I am really looking forward to when that show, we're recording this before I think the Naked Mole Rat episode got aired. Ah. And the uh, Diane, who edits the the shows for us, said she had the impression that you just like saying "naked mole rat" for some reason. So she counted naked how many times. Rat. Yeah, yeah. And so, if you haven't heard that episode yet, head back to that one. Apparently, it's a it's an interesting take on a biological <laughs> creature that is related or to reliability. So, anyway. Um, complete aside there but anyway thanks chris uh, <laughs> watch out for those regulations coming your way naked mall rat app apparently there you go <laughs> thanks chris thanks for thanks for listening to speaking of reliability we invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show please let us know You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.